0: Welcome to TMT's unscripted podcast series where industry innovators transform healthcare. Today, podcast host and moderator Marcus Osborne, retired senior VP of Walmart Health, speaks with Sean Mehra, CEO of HealthTap, to discuss the growth of home-based virtual primary care, its opportunities and challenges. Do they paint a vision for dystopia? or Utopia. Let's listen in now to learn where the market's heading.
1: Well, Sean, super exciting to be here again with you. And we're, we're going to talk today about one of my uh, very favorite topics, which is primary care in America. And um And, uh, and I think one of the hottest, what everybody loves talking about primary care right now, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it seems to be sort of top of mind for the whole whole industry. So I I appreciate you taking the time today to chat
2: about it. It's my pleasure. And I bet you one of the reasons we're friends is because that's
1: one of my favorite topics too. No, that's good. That's good. And and actually, what we're going to talk about, while the topic uh, uh, today is more about primary care in the home and and the kind of role of, of virtual primary care as well, uh, I don't want to start there. What I, what I'd actually like to start with is, um, uh, and and frankly, it's, I'll acknowledge, like, supposedly I'm a really well informed guy in healthcare, but maybe I'm not. Like, what what is what is actually primary care really, uh, from your perspective, and and when when and and I'm going to ask you that from you, you know as you, as someone who's been in the industry but I'm also going to ask you like from a consumer perspective like what when consumers think of and hear the term primary care what are they what are they really looking for what is important it's a great question
2: i would say primary care is what you need for 80% of the things 80% of the time it's inherently care for you holistically as a whole person looking at all of the things that make up your health over a period of time you know in a world where healthcare is getting sliced and diced up by specialists and specialized procedures and protocols primary care is the last remaining and important bastion that looks at the big picture and looks at all of you and tries to make sense of all of it over time And the key figure in all of that is the primary care doctor, which back in the day wasn't called the primary care doctor. Back in the day, it was just your doctor. And I think it's one of the legacies of the whole healthcare system that we need to hold on to for a very long time and not lose sight of the value that it provides in our life of not only taking care of us as a first stop for most things, um, but also making sure we don't lose sight of the big picture and read overly into certain symptoms or test results, and then end up making the wrong decisions ultimately. Um, But it's also someone who's in our corner proactively thinking about what else should we be doing and thinking about, right? That prevention and screening that we are so bad at thinking about on our own. Our primary care doctor is our friend and coach
1: that is doing that thinking for us all the time. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I, 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 you know, I did give some thought coming into the session, but uh, but there's something you said. But this was not one of the things that I thought about coming in. It's actually something you said triggered it. That you know, I, I think in my mind, a number of times as I think about primary care, I've compared it to you know the the idea of if I'm a if I'm an individual consumer, I'm trying to build my own home. Um, you know, I, I I go out and and try to find a, a general contractor who who I work with as a partner who's who's function and goal is to help me get my home built right and and I want a relationship with them and you know and their job is to really engage with me around that goal and be be that and and they're there are specialists in the home building space they're they're all the subcontractors right the the plumbers and electricians and the roofers and the landscapers and everybody else but at the end of the day like I don't want to deal like at the end of the day my relationship is really with that general contractor who I'm who I serve tasked with like help me get in a home Help me build the home that I want to live in, and in some ways that that feels as close to the sort of goal of for consumers for primary care as, as I can find probably if I'm looking for an analogy. That is one of the best analogies I've never thought of that's spot on, you're right. So, so then let's kind of pivot. So I think embedded in that is a set of expectations. What, what you've said is there's a set that consumers actually come in with a set of expectations around when they say I have a primary care relate, primary care physician relationship or I, I use primary care, what that really means. I'm kind of interested in how, how does the model of primary care um, and, and particularly understanding based on consumer expectations, how, how does that play out in the home? How does that play out virtually? Um, uh, and I'm not asking kind of how it's playing out today, but I'm saying, you know, how should it play out? Like, uh, and, and, you know, what, what is really required to be successful? Um, and, and to what extent can a, a, a virtual model and the home model be, be better and even more successful than the kind of, uh, than the physical bricks and mortar model and then I, mean, I guess maybe on the same side you know what are the limitations of it so i'm just kind of interested what's that role for for primary care in the home
2: yeah and i think this is getting to meat of this whole episode and the main point i want people to walk away with is that i believe it is inarguable that primary care belongs in your home but your primary care doctor does not mm-hmm. and i kind of want to explain what that means so if you assume for a second that the invisible hand of our free markets moves all products and services towards becoming increasingly efficient, then you just have to ask yourself, what is the most efficient way to deliver primary care? You know, first, what is primary care? Let's kind of break it down to its parts. There's the advice that your primary care doctor gives you. It's one of the things. Then there's all of the tests and medications and procedures you get along the way. And then there's the more advanced specialized stuff, the imaging and the surgeries and the specialty consultations you need once in a while. So let's talk about those in reverse order for a second. What's the most efficient way to deliver all three of those things? Well, you know, specialized equipment and teams that they're usually more efficient to aggregate in certain locations where it all comes together with the supporting infrastructure. So, you know, for surgeries and MRI, CT scans and multi-specialty teams, There will always be hospitals and integrated health systems and specialty clinics or imaging centers that bring all of this together and will always be where you have to bring the patient to. But then there's all the little things. You know, there's small enough and nimble enough to be brought to the patient in person physically. You know, everything from vaccines to a blood draw to an IV administration to a device measurement, a testing kit, wound care. Right. You can't really virtualize that physical stuff. Uh, But you can lean on uh, an efficient workforce of nurses and phlebotomists and technicians to administer that stuff. And if you can bring it to the patient, you probably will increase patient adherence and timely screening and do it in a way that improves outcomes. So that's probably the best way to get those out there to the patient. But then you have the PCP, him or herself. You know, what is a primary care doctor do? You know, I, 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 the analogy I use, Marcus, is that they're a coach in the game of life. You know, they, they help you analyze your game, call the right plays at each turn, and try to maximize your score of happy and healthy days that we have here on this earth. But another way to describe them is they're healthcare's most advanced information processing machines. <laughs> you know, ultimately, they're taking a lot of disparate data, leveraging decades of training and practice and pattern recognition, to identify insights and come up with diagnoses and treatment decisions along the way. And of course, their role extends to effectively communicating with the patient in a way that they get, you know, building a trusted relationship so their advice is actually followed. Um, but none of those things requires their physical presence in your life, mm-hmm. right? This exchange of words, the development of a trusted relationship, and this processing of information and decision making is probably most effectively done frequently remotely. Um, so I don't think that if you believe in an in efficiently delivered primary care solution and system that you need doctors making house calls again. Um, that certainly wouldn't help the shortage of PCPs we have today, right? In fact, we need to do the reverse, which is make it efficient for the few PCPs we have to take care of more fi- patients without giving up the quality of care that they provide. So I think when you put it all together you get a vision of what an efficient primary care system looks like. You have the specialized equipment, procedures and teams that continue to remain in your neighborhood that you have to you will have to go to. You'll have the little things with more nimble and agile workforces and equipment that can be brought to the patient to maximize adherence and timely intervention. And then you'll have this grand orchestrator, your coach and confidant or your general contractor like you said, who should be available to you at your fingertips, you know, at a moment's notice, whenever, wherever, right? Whether you're in the home or at work or on, on, on vacation. And so I, I think primary care in the home is really an omni-channel healthcare experience where some things are in the home, some things are in your neighborhood, and
1: some things probably just belong in the cloud. Yeah. And, and but I think one of the things that you sort of noted though, I want, I want to, I, I think that's actually a really interesting way to kind of deconstructed and, and 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 um and i think it's kind of spot on way to think about it i also you, but you noted this comment that inherent in primary care what you're trying to do is it, it i mean we talk a lot about trust in healthcare, but fundamentally the the real reason that trust is important is trust is required because if i as the the receiver the consumer if i'm actually going to do something i have to trust that what i'm getting um that i believe in it and that i'm committed to it right and so i think one of the things that's inherent in that even even in this kind of virtual your your point is that the physicians themselves don't need to come to your home you can engage with them virtually they can sort of play their role and play it well um coming from a kind of virtual uh, position but i still think it's you know on that point um it feels like you would say as well that, that, that I still have to, in, even though it may be virtual in nature, I still have to feel a strong degree of trust and faith oh. and in a relationship with that individual or with that team, um, because if I don't have that trust and I'm not going to really follow through, like I'm not going to fully believe what they're giving me. I'm not going to believe them as a sender, as an advisor and me as a receiver, right? Like I'm not. Um, so, so important what you said. You know, if you um,
2: let us play out a hypothetical future for a second and you tell me if this feels dystopian or utopian version of the future, Uh, this is a future where there is an algorithm that does population health and it knows everything perfectly about everyone and randomly drones will show up to draw your blood and run a scan and give you a medication And you just have to trust this black box algorithm that it is making the most perfect healthcare decisions. No human interaction needed along the way. Does that freak you out or does that excite you about an efficient healthcare system? I'll tell you personally, that's a little scary. And it's because I don't think the human species is right now ready to trust algorithms. Mm -hmm. And so you have to trust a human being with whom you develop a relationship because ultimately that's where you're going to get the confidence that. What you're doing is probably right for you, you know. And it's not some, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go down the rat hole of where machines can go wrong. But um, that trust, that human element, needs to feel more like there's one person who's seeing the big picture, orchestrating it all that you trust, and not like all these random procedures and one off things happening to you uh, with some unknown entity, some wizard of Oz behind the curtain that is pulling all the strings
1: yeah but i but and i think also i'll give you another kind of example that um that also has me sort of gives me a little bit of concern which is uh, maybe a little bit more dystopian than utopian but not not as scary as your sort of ai driven completely ai driven model which is i also am a little leery of the environment which says hey you come, you know, in a virtual environment. You can access all the primary care physicians and all the primary care capacity. It will always be, you know, all of them will always be available to you and on for you. And the thing that bothers me about that, that feels very dystopian, is like, okay, great. Well, I I love that I can access everything, but no one knows me, right? And um, and and that I'm not, you know, and that there's not sort of familiarity with me. And so, you know, that that um that idea of trust comes from a degree of comfort that says I'm interacting with somebody who actually has familiarity with me and knows me and, is, you know, potentially engaged with me. And, and so I think that's one of the other things. I'm sort of interested how you think about that, because I see a lot of virtual models today and, and home-driven primary care models that are more about, I can help you get access to primary care, but it's whoever, whoever is available to you in the moment. So, you know, some guy and, you know, this might be that you know some guy who's in you know hanging out in in northern California can see you right now, but if you were to you know reach out in two hours later we'll get you we'll connect you with somebody else who's in illinois like like mm-hmm. I know. so how how much do you think also this ability to have consistency uh from a consumer perspective is is critical in the model well, since we're playing the
2: game of analogies today, let me throw out another one if every time you went to the gym. You started with a different personal trainer. Do you think that's more or less effective than sticking with the same personal trainer over a long period of time? Now you could say, Hey, look, each trainer is going to know exactly the workout you did last time. But each time you meet with the personal trainer is going to be the first time you're meeting that trainer. And all they have to go by is the notes of the last one. Mm -hmm. Are you going to have better results or worse results than if the same trainer saw you over the next six months? And so similarly, um, I think that what's happened is the industry has conflated, you know, virtual care um, delivered as urgent care with the term primary care. That's a fancy way of saying that um, we're calling things primary care that are not primary care. I do believe primary care is the long-term relationship with a single doctor that is orchestrating a whole bunch of things for you over a period of time. And this idea of a call center where the first available doctor picks up to help you with the next issue du jour, that's not primary care. That is actually the very definition of urgent care. It's stopgap care by the, the first doctor available on call to help take care of you today, but is not taking responsibility for what happens to you 90 days from now. Who's taking responsibility for what happens to you 90 days from now?
1: so so then let's let's go to this question it's kind of interesting as you as you did this kind of deconstruction and you, you defined in in some ways you you sort of you are already kind of the question of of the limitations of virtual primary care you you sort of defined it you know you're not going to we're not putting an mri in everyone's home and we're not going to you know um some of the specialty care doesn't you know make sense to kind of continue to house uh centrally and have, have build build hub models where people come to it right uh, as exactly, opposed yeah. to um, so, but, uh, but it sort of then begs the question, uh, and, and, and I'm going to put aside, I don't, I don't care who, how it's being done today. I'm going to ask a slightly different question. As you think about primary care in the home, um, and, and the, and the reality of there are virtual elements of it, uh, in, in terms of the delivery of that, who should, who should be paying for it? Uh, not not I mean not who is paying for it today, but who should be in that in that kind of model of a of true home based primary care that home based slash virtual primary care. Um, who who should be the payer, and and why? It, I guess this
2: is a a hard question because you have to kind of get psychological and philosophical about what's the right thing to do here. You know, if you think about humans, psychologically, we're terrible at investing in long-term rewards, right? We're, we, we like immediate gratification, and we like things that give us immediate feedback. And making small little behavioral changes today that may or may not hurt or benefit us decades from now in our life, we're never going to make day-to-day the right decisions with our dollars and our behavior uh for for that long-term benefit or punishment so then you have to say if we're not going to make the right decisions for our long-term benefit who is going to help us do that and so the reason i'm saying this is because my inclination is to say marcus i think if you really uh let consumers consume primary care with their own dollars and you remove a lot of like the the payer and government kind of oversight from the whole equation. Um, What you're going to get, like you get with most other industries and markets that are not as heavily regulated is, you know, increased competition that increases the quality of goods and services, increases transparency, better manages consumer expectations and delivers a service that consumers vote for with their own dollars. And if you deliver a bad experience, people will leave your business and go work, go do business with your competitor. I do believe that a good amount of consumer pay primary care is necessary to create the requisite innovation and competition to improve the healthcare system, full stop. But the reason this is such a tricky answer for me is that even though that my predisposition to say is to get consumers to pay for it, I think there's an aspect of primary care prevention, wellness, and screening that consumers will all be very terrible at investing. So um, it's probably a hybrid.
1: Well, I think it's interesting. I've I've had this discussion a lot. I actually don't know that I know the answer either. And I think it's going to be kind of a a tricky one. I'm not certain, you know, I've increasingly, my my experience that when I was, you know, at Walmart and trying to kind of think through a lot of these questions is that I always found um, free sometimes didn't work. And you know if it's fully covered by somebody else that didn't work um that that when I had to put some skin in the game when I had some skin in the game i i seemed more kind of engaged and motivated um i i i my you know I think about my experience on on dental i i'm i uh, i go get my teeth cleaned and checked every six months um mm-hmm. And what I can tell you is my uh, it, it's not because I have dental insurance that helps cover almost all my preventative treatment. It is not the thing that motivates me to do it. It was the fact that my mother, uh, when I was growing up, made me do it every six months, and I'm still I love her, but I'm scared of her. Uh, I had my <laughs> my, uh, my previous mother-in-law, uh, from you know, uh, I was a dentist, and I was scared of her too. Like I like, and so it was sort of I did it. Um, uh, because I, one, I knew it was the right thing to do. And two, I was like, God forbid, I have to have a conversation with any of these mothers that I had to tell them that I had <laughs> skipped a, a dental appointment. Right. So in in some ways, I, I think it's, you know, the question becomes, uh, you know, your your point is, is how much is the payment, the motivator to sort of drive engagement and consumption? And, and I, I don't know that I know the answer. I think sometimes it's overdone, but it's a it's a, it's a good, it is a big question. I think what we do know is this, if it's, if it is, if you believe that it is unaffordable, you will not, you will defer, you will delay and you will not get the care you need. And so we've got to kind of make sure that whatever it is, it's, it's regardless if there is some consumer skin in the game that, that I think it's got to be affordable. I don't know if you, I don't know if you sort of agree with that or.
2: Well, I have to agree with it because it happens to be the very core thesis behind the business model, what we do at HealthTap, but I believe that the greatest barrier to, you know, the adoption and proper utilization of primary care is the fact that it is cost prohibitive. Um, People with the uh, best insurance plans, where your co-pays are the smallest, represent a minority of the country. Uh, The majority of this country lives on a high deductible plan, and so we might... Live under this illusion that most of America is, quote unquote, insured. But when your average deductible is $2,000 for an individual and $4,000 for a family for an average median income of whatever, 50 to 60 grand, this is, you know, a decision sometimes between, you know, do I get my annual checkup and screening or do I pay for rent uh, or do I pay for fuel? And for many Americans, it is that kind of pocketbook trade-off. And guess what? I'm always going to choose my rent and groceries and fuel. And so if we don't address the affordability of primary care in a way that has skin in the game for consumers, so they value it. Uh, so this is not like a free socialist benefit. Everyone gets free primary care all the time. You know, there's got to be skin in the game, so they value it. Um it's never going to get the adoption it needs. And if it doesn't get the adoption it needs, healthcare costs are going to keep going higher because people are just going to start presenting to specialists when things are too late and too costly. So this is not about what we do here at HealthTep this episode, but I do think this whole idea that primary care needs to be affordable, even if you do not have good insurance, uh, and we need to allow people to pay for it with a credit card. uh, It's key to the success of making primary care
1: important again. Well, I think it's, it's funny, I mean, you, you talk about what you're doing at HealthTap, I think when I was at Walmart and helping create and launch Walmart Health, that was exactly what that was the sort of premise there as well, is that the sort of focus on what can you do to truly make it more affordable and accessible. So I want to pivot a little bit. So then, then it begs a question. So we're going back to, you know, we're talking about primary care in the home. And we're we and we've, I think we've kind of talked about what you think is the optimal model and and how it kind of comes together. Um, what as you think about a future in which every uh, let, let's let's say the goal was every American was was able to access high quality primary care um, that it that that the model mer- is is largely one um, that is is in the home and virtual in nature and, and sort of combining those on an omnichannel channel basis um, let's say that was where we wanted to get to uh, every for every single American uh, what 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 ho- what is holding us back to that sort of greater move of primary care to the home uh, is it is it you know how do you think it is is it regulatory in nature or or uh, kind of some of it's reg- I call it regulatory which means that's government driven some of it is guild driven meaning you know, licensing groups or 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 professional groups who sort of have some control over policy that limit. Is it um, is it is it driven by the primary care physicians themselves and their willingness or interest to kind of change how they operate, or is it is it is it consumer driven? You know, what what do you see as the sort of big things, or what do you really see as the real things that are going to keep this that if that vision was the goal from actually coming to fruition.
2: I think all the players in the ecosystem have a role to play and some blame to share in for it not already happening. So part of it is just runtime. We need to let the industry, you know, continue to innovate so that testing kits become more predominant and, you know, devices get more miniaturized and affordable. And part of this is just kind of the ongoing innovation that happens in this market and eventually more and more things can be done at home very cheaply. Um, Part of it is absolutely regulatory and, you know, pair related. Um, There's so many plans right now that will not reimburse primary care if you don't have a physical office in in that state where the plan is administered. It's just an archaic way of thinking, especially in a world where the same companies are touting the benefits of virtual care, right? so I think that there's definitely regulatory hurdles. Don't even get me started on, you know, state credentialing restrictions and limitations that prevent a doctor treating a patient down the road just because they live in a different quote unquote state in this country.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of players in, in this mix that um, are responsible for it not happening yet, but I think it'll get there. I do think it'll get there.
1: Yeah, and I, you know it's actually fun. I, I think one of the things I, I do acknowledge is that oftentimes um, there there I, uh, there is a, there's this concept in physics that if, if you're on a moving object, you yourself don't sort of fully recognize the movement of that <laughs> object, and and um, uh, uh, and I'm sure it's something sort of related to to, to well I, partially Newtonian in in principle, but it's also uh, comes from sort of I, you know, some, some concepts of Einstein, but the, the um, uh, yeah. about movement and time, time movement and everything else. So I'm, I'm also mindful that uh, I think we all think things are moving slowly, but the reality is if you actually could step back off the, off the train that's moving, you would actually notice it's actually moving fairly quickly. And certainly COVID and other things I think have caught, and, and some of the, some of the changes that were made to facilitate addressing the kind of care challenges that COVID presented uh, really did sort of move things along so I think the fact is it probably is that things are moving it's just when you're on it it doesn't feel like it's moving as fast as it should be well,
2: that's right and it's such a good analogy once again this is going to be the episode of analogies really awesome healthcare analogies because <laughs> if you think about who is on that train that doesn't realize it's moving in this direction it's the incumbent institutions in healthcare yep. you know Payers don't realize they're being disintermediated by these like, you know, consumer brands, you know, providers are fighting to hold on to their power as, you know, these local primary care clinics, which they know are loss leading, you know, business units. And they're unwilling to give up this idea that they must be the community digital front door and brand in order to specialize on the things that are profitable for them and let go of that you know, and then you have the governments holding on to the way things are done because they don't want to rock the boat and the lobby. So the people that realize things are moving and the train is in motion are the people looking at the industry from the outside, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, right, the investors. And so that's why we're more optimistic at jumping onto the train with fresh new thinking and the people on the train, you know, these incumbent institutions may not realize that by the time we're all on board, they're a hundred miles from where they started and they yep. probably need to rethink the whole journey. <laughs> yep.
1: No, I think that's true. Um, so I want to come back and, and maybe this be kind of the last question. And, and it really, it's, it's something that I have, you know, people who have been talking to me know that I have gotten really fixated. I have these problems where I get interested or I get sort of obsessed with something. So one of the things I've gotten obsessed with is, is the concept of primary uh, of, of actual primary care physicians. And I, and, and again, I will ask people to kind of check these numbers because sometimes I sort of put things that don't always sort of come together. But let's just say that roughly in the U.S., there are you know a couple hundred thousand primary care physicians and family docs that are that are practicing. Uh, I think I saw a statistic somewhere that about forty percent of or so are over the age of sixty. I also saw a separate statistic that said if you're primary, if they ask primary care physicians particularly, when do you intend or do you hope to retire? Unlike some specialists, the retirement age is around sixty-five. So I'm sort of doing the math and saying, wow, we've got a lot of people who are currently practicing that are going to come out of that workforce. We have demand growing for this, this, this kind of uh, a provider type. And I look at our medical schools and our you know, the residency programs and everything else and say, yeah, last I looked, it's only a kind of few thousand, maybe 4,000 primary care physicians are coming out of residency programs every year. And I'm like, hey, there's a math problem here. Right. Absolutely. That, that I can't, you know, if you believe that demand is going to increase, um, but that supply is going to be challenged. How do we how do we address that? And so I'm interested as as you know, some of it, people will talk about APNs, you know, nurse practitioners or PAs as the basis or. Um, but I'm kind of interested, you know, go back to the definition of primary care of what you're trying to address. How how do you how do you see and 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 particularly if we're trying to make it more ubiquitous to the home, um, how does how does home based primary care and virtual primary care deal with what I think is an emerging uh, uh, labor challenge reality that if you're talking about primary care, we're not we're not we don't really have a a lot of primary care physicians. We're not really producing a lot of them. How do how do we address that? How do we address that issue?
2: Yeah, I think you summarize it well. You have more demand for primary care than you have supply of primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. All right. And the rate at which we're creating a supply of primary care doctors is measured in decades. Like you said, you got to build more medical school, crank out more graduates, convince more people to go into the profession. Um, So in the meantime, what do you do? Well, the only way you make that math problem work is you make the existing supply more productive, more efficient. How do you let the same number of primary care doctors take care of more people efficiently. Yeah, you have to lean on and outsource and delegate the aspects of primary care that doesn't have to be done by the physician to the APNs and the technicians and the phlebotomists and the PAs, and have them do it in ways that bring people to the home or uh, bring it local to their neighborhood so that, um, you know, PCPs can focus on the things that they're more uniquely able to do. But, There is a very powerful force and impact to virtualizing the primary care relationship. And it's related to a totally different stat that I read the other day, which kind of boggled my mind. You know, during the pandemic, when most of America was self-quarantining and therefore most people were working remotely, in America, it's estimated that we saved 65 million hours a day by not commuting like the American public, 65 million hours a day, you can't even begin to calculate the impact to our GDP and productivity. And I, and I say this stat because it is analogous to thinking about how much more productive PCPs can be if they don't need to physically make house calls or show up to clinics or show up to buildings, but rather they can efficiently wake up one morning, crank through a bunch of text messages from their patients, set up the video appointments that they need to, and make a whole bunch of decisions from the comfort of their smartphone or their laptop, whether they're in their home or on vacation, they can constantly be productive more often. And theoretically, it's a recipe for making the average panel size for a PCP, not 1,500 per PCP, but maybe 4,000 per PCP, 5,000 per PCP. If you could increase the panel size of a PCP without compromising the quality of care, rather maybe even improving the, the experience because they're so available to patients virtually. I mean, that's a win, 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 I think. And I think that's how you make the math work. Um, well, and, I, 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 and
1: I agree. And I think some of the benefit of the virtualization as well is the technology that you can put in place to support them providing care. I mean, I think the other area of, of productivity gains is, and, I, and you know, you hear different numbers, but the average primary care physician or or nurse in a primary care practice today spending 30, 40, 50% of her or his time doing administrative tasks to try to figure out how to get paid or do whatever you got to do. If you now, because you've created a virtual environment and you can build a set of tools around it that says, I can automate those administrative functions. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, you're almost basically saying you can double capacity overnight if we eliminate it all.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I do believe so. and, and, I know we're, we're kind of wrapping up here and I want to leave people with a, a cartoon that I recently saw that made me realize that the future is hat here. So you you might recall an old cartoon called The Jetsons. Not everyone uh, that's a Gen Z or millennial might remember that cartoon, but there was an episode which kind of predicted the future of primary care in the home. And in that episode, the mother, Jane Jetson, she's greeted by her son, Elroy, and he complains, mom, I have the Venus virus and I can't go to school even though I have a test today. And so Jane, the mom, pushes a button in the wall and calls their family PCP. Some TV comes out of the ceiling, and the doctor starts inspecting Elroy's throat uh, through the TV. And he says, Elroy, you're not sick. You need to go to school, son, much to his disappointment.
0: We appreciate your tuning in to TMT's unscripted podcast series featuring podcast host and moderator Marcus Osborne, former senior VP of Walmart Health. Want to learn more or have a comment about the program? Have a novel evidence-based approach or solution to share with our audience? If so, send an email to info at partnersindigitalhealth.com or visit telehealth and medicine today. Thanks for listening to Unscripted from TMT Journal.